All right, back to Revelation. Revelation 13 is what we're going to be considering this morning. Just a quick review of the couple of the previous chapters, not going all the way back this time to the beginning of the book of Revelation, but just to catch us up kind of where we are in this particular part of the book. So starting in chapter 10, um, the angel comes to the apostle John and he tells him to eat a scroll. And this scroll, we think, is related to the scroll of chapter 5 that Christ has taken out of the right hand of God the Father. It's a scroll containing the announcements of God's judgments and salvation in the world. And as a result, the angel tells John to eat this scroll, appropriating it so that he might proclaim it. He's not just to receive this revelation, not just to write it down, but also to speak it. And then in chapter 11, we see that this call to speak the contents of God's plan for history, uh, which he has revealed in his word, is not just the responsibility of the Apostle John, it's also the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ, which takes the position of the two witnesses that we see in Revelation chapter 11. And then we come last week uh, during Resurrection Sunday to consider Revelation chapter 12, which I told you was kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on as the church is involved in proclaiming and preaching the gospel, that this doesn't mean that the church is going to be without, as we've seen throughout Revelation, without opposition in its mission. That even as we are called by Christ to take the gospel out, there is spiritual warfare taking place. We saw in Revelation 12 that Satan pictured as a dragon coming after the church, um, coming after trying to stop Christ from coming into the world, trying to defeat Christ while he was on earth, Christ eventually defeating the dragon on the cross and through his resurrection. And now, since he can't defeat Christ any longer, he has taken his aim at the church of Jesus Christ to try to persecute and extinguish it. And that is the, the message of Revelation chapter 12. Now we come to Revelation 13, which continues what Revelation 12 set out. In chapter 13 now, we see how the dragon, Satan, is raging against the church, or the woman of Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 13, we see a picture of how the battle of chapter 12 is going to be waged between Satan and the church. What's he going to do to try to bring the church into submission to himself? Revelation 13 explains in more detail the precise nature and the precise extent of Satan's persecution of the people of God. Though Satan has been defeated, he can still oppress the saints, and the primary way in which he exert, exerts his nefarious influence and wages war against the seed of the woman is through the activities of what is called in Revelation 13 the first and second beast. The beasts are the dragon's henchmen, and they are called to advance his agenda. The first beast is discussed in Revelation 13, 1 through 10, and the second beast in Revelation 11 through 13. So we're not going to look at this chapter verse by verse, looking at each of the 18 verses individually. But what I want to do is lay out some of the larger truths that we see in the chapter and then make three applications from them. All right? So our outline this morning will be fairly simple, the form of the unholy trinity and the function of the unholy trinity. Now, I'm calling this sermon the unholy trinity because I believe that the dragon, the beast, the first and the second beast, the second beast is also called the false prophet, as we see later on in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to refer to the second beast as the false prophet. But the dragon, the beast, and the, and the false prophet are a form of counterfeit trinity. They are taking the, trying to take the place of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit and work out their will in the earth contrary to what God's will is. So that's what we're going to see, first of all, the form of the unholy trinity, and then secondly, we'll look at the function of the unholy trinity. So let's look, first of all, at the form of the unholy trinity that we see here in Revelation 13. We'll be dipping back a little bit into chapter 12 as well. So first of all, um, my first point is that the dragon that we met in chapter 12, Satan, is in chapter 13 kind of functioning as a counterfeit God the Father. What do I mean by that? Well, the dragon of chapter 12 stands on the shore. Remember, this is Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, where the Satan is referred to as a dragon. And we see in chapter 13, verse 1, that as he stands on the shore, another beast comes out of the sea. The dragon has 
the dragon is pictured here, or the beast is pictured as, the dragon is the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. The beast looks like the dragon. The dragon is described in similar language in chapter 12. The dragon is standing on the shore, which is eerily similar to the way the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Only the dragon here is bringing forth his creation out of the water. It appears that the dragon is imitating what God the Father did in Genesis 1.27, except he's counterfeiting it. He counterfeits God the Father by producing a counterfeit son, the first beast. Satan aspires to be God and to control everything himself, and he has a plan that is analogous to God the Father's plan. Just as the dragon is the counterfeit of God the Father then, we would expect the beast to be the counterfeit of God the Son. And we're going to see that now, the beast as the counterfeit of God the Son. Now, just as Christ is described in Revelation 19 as having many crowns, so the beast has ten crowns. Just as Christ has worthy names given to him in Revelation 19, so the beast has blasphemous names that are given to him. Just as Christ has divine power, as we saw in Revelation chapter 12, so the beast has great power. We see in Revelation 13 too. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and as the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Just as Christ experienced the resurrection, as we saw in Revelation chapter 12 verse 5, so the beast experiences a counterfeit resurrection. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So the beast is very resilient. He, and since he keeps coming back from defeat, many will accept that he can't be overcome, and they'll declare their allegiance to him. As is often seen throughout history, people love to support a winner. Just as Christ receives worship in Revelation chapter 5, verses 18, uh, 8 through 10, so the beast receives worship. Look at Revelation 14. We'll get more in detail here next week, but we see in Revelation, or sorry, 13, 13 verse 4, um, and they worship the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So just as Christ has ultimate authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, so the beast has claimed authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We read in verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was giving it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And then just as Christ put a seal on his followers, so the beast puts a seal on his followers. We see in Verse 16, and also it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So this is, this is interesting. What's happening here with this beast in Revelation 13 is he's counterfeiting the Son of God. He's counterfeiting what Christ is and who Christ is and what he does. Now this seal that is given, um, that we often call the mark of the beast brings us to one of the most debated and discussed sections of Revelation. Uh, what's the mark of the beast? What's this 666 all about? So I'll go ahead and hopefully give you an insight into that right now. Now we've seen that Satan is making an effort to copy whatever God does, right? Satan is not the first one to mark people. God is the first one to mark people. We see that in Revelation chapter 7. But the so-called mark of the beast that unbelievers receive is a demonic ripoff a depraved parody, a counterfeit imitation of the mark that believers receive on their foreheads. Now, this is spiritual again. It's, it's, it's apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic. People aren't literally getting marked on their forehead with certain numbers. Seven, as we know in the book of Revelation, is the number of fullness, perfection, holy completion. The number six, then, may communicate the number of imperfection and unholy completion. So if seven is the number for God, six, as is told here in Revelation 13, is the number that most resembles but is not God, man. So that's why we see here in Revelation 13 at the end, this, this calls for wisdom. Verse 18, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of man. So it's a 
completely incomplete number. That's the idea being communicated here. Kevin DeYoung, commenting on this number, says, all of, all of which is to say, whatever you think of the way the medical establishment and the media and our politicians have handled this global pandemic, the mark of the beast is not going to be found in an implanted microchip. If, however, doctors or politicians or members of the media or anyone else, for that matter, elevates himself to a position of godlike authority and knowledge, that's what Revelation warns Christians against. Whatever or whomever appears as true Christianity in order to draw us away to some human counterfeit, that's the work of the beast, and his number is 666. So the idea is a counterfeit of the true Christ. Just as the fullness of Revelation, the, fullness, the, no, the number of fullness in Revelation is seven. So this gets as close, but it isn't. It's a, it's a close counterfeit, which is why the beast is able to deceive and capture the nations. Because it appears, he appears as one who is God-like, who is incapable of being defeated and destroyed. Which brings us, thirdly, we've seen the dragon focusing as uh, becoming kind of like a counterfeit God the Father and the beast coming as a counterfeit God the Son. So we would expect maybe the false prophet, the second beast, as a counterfeit of God the Spirit. And I think we see that. Another beast comes out of the earth in Revelation 13, 11, and the beast is later identified in chapter 16, verse 13, as the false prophet who works miraculous signs. Now, through miraculous signs in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was the one who pointed people to Christ. And similarly, through miraculous signs, the false prophet promotes the worship of the beast. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, verse 13, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, let me just pause here, okay, before we get into a little bit more to this. And I just want to set up, remember, whenever we encounter images in, in the book of Revelation, we have to think, where is this occurring in other parts of the Bible? Where have we already seen this take place? Remember, what is the dominant paradigm that John is, 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 is operating under as he explains the seven seals, as he explains the seven trumpets, and as he will explain the seven bowls, these three cycles of three judgments. Where have we seen three cycles of three judgments before? The plagues in Egypt. Three cycles, three judgments. What's going on in there? Counterfeit all the time, right? You have you have Moses coming, and he's presenting the true work of God, and the Egyptian magicians are counterfeiting it and showing that it's, it's Satan waging war against God. So this imagery should not be completely foreign to us. It's imagery that the first century Christians would have heard and thought, wow, this sounds eerily similar to what we've already read in the Old Testament. And that's what's happening here. This false prophet is manufacturing counterfeit miracles to try to win worship for the beast. Just as the Holy Spirit was sent as another counselor who operated in the authority of Christ, John 14, so also the false prophet is exercising all authority on behalf of the first beast. And the Holy Spirit, just as he guides us into all truth, John 16, 13, so the false prophet is trying to lead into all deception. So we have a counterfeit trinity at work. We see here a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet forming an unholy trinity patterning themselves after God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And just as the Father planned, so the dragon plans. And just as Christ executes the plan, so the beast executes the Father's plan, or the dragon's plan. And just as the Spirit witnesses to the truth, so the false prophet propagates deception on behalf of the beast and the dragon. This is classic satanic work. Satan's deception is always trying to make his ways look attractive versus God's ways. And the only way he can do that is to counterfeit what God is doing. Satan can't create. All he can do is mimic. So he counterfeits. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 through 15, we see that he masquerades as an angel of light, seeking to win devotion. Now, brothers and sisters, our danger lies in the fact that counterfeits are always close to the real thing. Evil mimics the true God, which is partly why it can deceive. It's partly why it's so attractive and partly why 
It's so subtle. So that's the form of the unholy trinity. I hope you see that in Revelation 13. And now we're going to get into the function. How does the first beast and the second beast seek to execute their plan? How, 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 are, they, how are they working? How are they functioning? We've seen their form. Now let's look at their function. While chapter 12 presents the conflict in cosmic perspective, remember between the dragon and the woman and the child, chapter 13 puts it in political perspective. Chapter 13 reveals Rome's political, economic, religious system to represent the devil's rule, to be antithetical to God's purposes, and to be an enslaving system, one that deceptively demands inappropriate allegiance. We've seen this already in Jesus' letters to the seven churches and the way he talks to those churches, right? Some of the churches are being led astray by false teaching. Others of the churches are being persecuted by the government and uh, shut out of economic and citizen opportunities and things like that through the oppression of Rome. And this, this first beast is taking on that characteristic. Satan works within systems and institutions in the world. Daniel 7 is the background here. In Daniel 7, we read about four beasts who rise up out of the sea, similar to what we read in Revelation 13, 1, with this beast rising out of the sea. And the image of an evil sea monster always, always symbolizes kingdoms in the Bible. Kingdoms that oppose and oppress God's people, especially Egypt and Pharaoh, as we've seen as the background here. But we have other texts that we could turn to. Psalm 74, Psalm 89, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 29, Ezekiel 32, Habakkuk 3. All picture beast activity as kingdom activity that's opposed to oppress God's people. Opposed to and oppress God's people. So John describes the beast as a composite of the world empires that Daniel 7 reveals. The beast as an archetype of the kingdoms of the world that are characterized by violence and bloodlust like the violent beasts who symbolize them. So whereas the four beasts of Daniel 7 represent most likely four historically successive world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, so the sea beast of Revelation 13 is John's creative, symbolic, composite of them all. All evil characteristics of these four kingdoms in Daniel 7 are now embodied in the one sea beast who becomes Satan's principal agent in persecuting the people of God. Here's Sam Storms and what he says regarding this beast. Anything and anyone that seeks to oppress, persecute, or destroy the church is the beast. Okay, are we clear on that? The beast is not a literal singular individual. The beast is a symbolic representation of persecution. Anything and anyone that seeks to oppress, persecute, or destroy the church is the beast. The beast is a symbol for all individual and collective, satanically inspired opposition to Jesus and his people. It's anything and everything, whether a principle, a person, or a power, utilized by the enemy to deceive and destroy the influence and advancement of the kingdom of God. That's the beast, okay? So it's a principle that we're thinking about here. It's a symbol. It's an image of persecution against God's people. Now, whereas the first beast primarily symbolizes political power, based on Daniel 7, the false prophet in verses 11 through 18 primarily symbolize false ideology and deception, particularly deception that serves the ultimate supremacy to the state, to the first beast. This prophet speaks words like a dragon, we are told, showing it's ultimately empowered by the father of lies himself. The false prophet bucks no rivals to the beast, marking all who are loyal to it, and stripping those who won't bow to the beast of their ability to buy and sell. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 13. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the the number of its name. So this is an attempt to impoverish the saints who won't bow to the beast and embrace the beast's satanic agenda. We've already seen this in the letters to the churches in Revelation, where they were being shut out of the synagogue, shut out of the marketplaces, 
shut out of opportunities in their communities because of their devotion to Christ. So what do we see here? Together, this beast and this false prophet represent, as one writer said, theopolitical megalomania and any collaboration of political power and civil religion that falsely claims to represent the true God and his will. Another writer says, the beast is the inhumane, anti-God arrogance of empire. All who support the cultural religion in or out of the church, however lamb-like they may appear, are agents of the beast. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of the beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. So I want to talk about this. Think about what's going on here. The beast is advocating a cultural religion that is seeking to get all people to embrace it, and if they won't, they will bear down upon them to try to get them punished. Okay, that's what the beast does. But the beast also seeks to entice humanity to idolize it and to put its trust in it and to hope that it will fix the problems. So the beast is after co-opting the church and crushing the church. At the same time, it will do one or the other, which is why the church has to be on guard in the way it sees the beast and relates to it. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you that with the increase in secularism in our country, we are more and more focusing on state as our savior because this is the way it always goes. When people abandon the worship of God, they embrace the worship of the state. This is what Revelation 13 is teaching. When there is no God to be worshipped, the state will be worshipped. The state will be that which executes goodness in the land. The state will be that which gathers allegiance to itself. The state is that which will govern with, an, with either a propaganda campaign to win the, the, the allegiance of the people or bear down upon them with punishment if they won't. Now, just to be clear, political power does not necessarily have to be, nor does it always set out to be, bestial. But in the process of seeking to be God, the state can become demonic. Because governments that exalt humanity inevitably become inhumane. And that's what we've seen throughout history. Now, I want to talk this morning under the function of the beast. I want to identify three ways in which the beast is seeking to work out his will in the world by persecuting the people of God through both religious deception and state control. First of all, there's the desire to control through power. The desire to control through power. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 13. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority or power for 42 months. Now, don't be confused by 42 months. All right, 42 months is 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's a, it's a picture of the time period between Christ's resurrection and Christ's second coming. Okay, it's a symbolic picture of the church age. We saw it in chapter 11, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So just as the witnesses, the church is called to preach the gospel during the entire age between Christ's first and second coming, so the beast will also be permitted to exercise his authority during that same time period. Verse 6 of chapter 13, it, talking about the first beast, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Verses 13 and 14, look at those two verses. It it performs great signs, so it has great power, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this desire to control people by exercising great power and showing off great might and showing off great skill and wisdom is the way in which the state wins worship and allegiance for itself. So the kingdom rises out of the sea in John's vision, and this kingdom is not a humane, civil, and supportive government. It's a hostile one. It's pictured as a ravaging, ferocious beast that preys upon its citizens. 
Now, politics in our culture, brothers and sisters, on both sides of the aisle are about the exercise of power through the manipulation of force or the manipulation of words. And sadly, this is also true of our own precious country. We must remember, brothers and sisters, that though our founding as a country was founding, recognizing in many ways the propensity of governments to be beastly and to seek to resist that, both in the branches of our government as well as the way in which our government functions, nevertheless, the United States is not the kingdom of God. It's part of the group of nations in Psalm 2 that rages against the Lord. Okay? It rages against the Lord and against his anointed. Christ neglecting conservatives and Christ neglecting progressive are building the same godless kingdom. Despite the evidences of common grace in our political system, common grace worth preserving as long as we can, right? We also see evidence of the beast's image imprinted on our country. On the conservative end, it was reflected in America's founding when it embraced a system of race-based slavery that considered black image bearers only three-fifths of a person. It continued in Jim Crow segregation where many churches were complicit in the abuse of, and in many cases, they're uh, uh, not only complicit in the abuse of, in many cases, their black brothers and sisters, but participating in it all out of fear of the beast and the governmental repercussions that would come with that. On the progressive end, that same bestial bloodlust of government upholds and funds institutions responsible for the slaughter of nearly 60 million unborn babies in the last 50 years and recently failed to pass legislation protecting babies who survive abortion from infanticide? See, brothers and sisters, what makes this especially challenging is that politics in our day is often presented in the form of package deal ethics. Political parties often insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their improved positions. This emphasis on package deal ethics puts pressure on the church. For example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians know we should be committed to biblical justice and the poor, but also to understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing the family. One of those views seems liberal and the other looks oppressively conservative in our day. It wasn't at a time, but it is now. The historic Christian positions on social issues don't fit neatly into contemporary political alignments. So as Christians, we're pushed toward two main options. One's to withdraw and try to be apolitical. The second is to assimilate and fully adopt the whole package in order to have your place at the table. That creates a problem. Because the political right in our country is right to a point, and then they serve the beast. And the political left in our country may be right to a point, and then they serve the beast. So this is why faithfulness demands us to speak truth to power on both sides of the aisle. Instead of being controlled by them and manipulated by them into embracing their categories for things. We embrace God's categories for things regardless if they're red or blue. And if, if regardless if they change. If they're black and white in the Bible, they're black and white to us as God's people. Now we can talk about how those things get worked out policy-wise and what's the best wisdom to, to do all that. That's, that's all fine and dandy. But the issues themselves, if God has spoken clearly, we as his people must speak clearly as well. Remember that Jesus refused to be controlled or to seek control through the exercise of earthly power. He had it offered to him all the time. His disciples even wanted him to do it sometimes. Would you just take over? Would you just take over? Show Caesar who's boss. Show Pilate who's their boss. Show Herod who's boss. But remember that Jesus received, even during his earthly ministry, nearly constant encouragement to overthrow the corrupt, evil, godless Roman Empire that was actively oppressing God's people, and he didn't do it. Jesus could have spoken a single word and established his kingdom on earth, but instead he chose submission and death on the cross to save sinners. And aren't we glad? (laughs) And Jesus' people are still pleading for him to flex his political muscles. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. But Jesus isn't interested. Brothers and sisters, in the book of Revelation, it's ultimately the love affair with empire that competes with the hearts of God's people. The faithful follow the way of the Lamb, 
not the way of the dragon. By choosing suffering over security and choosing crucifixion over complicity. Any admonition that the church must exercise power should be checked with the immediate reminder that Christ did not. Now that doesn't mean the church and as Christians as individual don't seek to influence the political process. Of course, of course, we do it as citizens and we do it as Christians. But we have to remember that it's the cross, not the boardroom, not the Oval Office, not the box office, that is the absolute center of the kingdom of God. And we must represent the cross at all times. So that's the, one, that's the first way the beast seeks to control, is to control through power. Second, a desire to co-opt through promise. A desire to co-opt through promise. Look at verse 4, where we read, And they worshipped the dragon, talking about unbelievers, for they had given his authority to the beast, the dragon that is, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? And who can fight against it? So this great veneration of this power in the world is being given to the beast. He's co-opted them. He's taken them captive for his allegiance to himself. Look at verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So they're saying, listen, unbelievers are, are going to seek and support and try to advance all that they desire through the beast, through the government, through the state, through imposition of laws and things like that. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast, talking about the frost prophet in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So where it can't control, it will seek to co-opt. It will bring people aboard its agenda to try to help it advance its agenda through the people who are in allegiance to it. Now, we have to be clear, human government is God's idea, okay? And it's often an agent of good, and God intends it as an agent of good, as an institution of common grace that orders society and keeps unrighteousness in check. Yet human government is also fallen and co-opted by the dragon to appease his bloodlust and wage war against the saints. In fact, the blessings of good government are often the very thing that Satan employs to promote the state as a false messiah. As the beast in John's time, the, the, be, the Rome promised stability and wealth and safety and justice if you would just bow to it. But like every political institution and ideology, it promised utopia. But it also demanded devotion, even worship, from its subjects. It wanted to be seen as the Savior. Christians need to be aware, brothers and sisters, we have to be aware the beast is, is operating this way and how our nation's political movements and parties beckon our unswavering devotion, inviting us to follow them as saviors. Political promises are often endowed with like utopian, eschatological, new heavens and new earth kind of language. If you vote me in, I'll fix everything. I'll make it a heaven on earth here. The hope of heaven is their promise. Political powers claims that they alone can fix the system or at least stop the other side from leading us into ruin. And the state is often after your worship. The principalities and powers want the church's worship, and they'll do this most commonly by co-opting us. They convince us that the temporary kingdoms of this world are the most important battles to be fought. And boy, hasn't the beast routed the church in these days through that kind of stuff. These issues are the most important. Not getting the gospel to the nations. Not seeing sinners converted. Not seeing hearts transformed. Fixing this problem that I alone can fix. They convince us that the temporary kingdoms of this world are the most important, their battles are the most crucial, their threats are to be most feared, and their promises are the most to be sought. They distract us from investing wholeheartedly in making disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the growth of the church, and instead put us on the sidelines with squabbles concerning the temporary fallen kingdoms of men. And our power is drained. And we're sidelined. 
and we're off mission. And we're under the beast, thinking that we're doing the Lord's work. The profound religious insight in chapter 13 is that behind these kaleidoscope of pictures, men and women are so constituted as to worship some absolute power. We will do it. We've heard it again and again, right? Got to serve somebody. We'll worship something. We can't turn off the worship engine in our souls because we're made to do it. We're made to give our devotion. We're made to give our allegiance. We're made to give our time and attention and energy to something. And if we don't worship the true God and the real power behind the universe, we'll construct a God for ourselves and give allegiance to that. In the last analysis, it's always a choice between the power that operates through inflicting suffering, that's the power of the beast, and the power that operates through accepting suffering, that's the power of the Lamb. Now, we need to be aware of this happening. Right? On Monday, August 27, 2018, our former president, who did many great things and good things, nevertheless met with a number of pastors at the White House. He told the pastors in attendance that they were one election away from losing everything. That if he and the GOP lost, they should expect violence against conservative Christians. Now, the reason I bring this up is not because I want to make a statement in favor of any political agenda. It's because of what Michael Horton, a Reformed Presbyterian and systematic theology professor, wrote addressing these comments when he says the following. The church does not preach the gospel at the pleasure of any administration or decline to preach it at another administration's displeasure. We preach it at Christ's pleasure. When we seek political favors, special political favors for the church, we communicate to the masses that Christ's kingdom is just another demographic in the U.S. electorate. Liberal and conservative, Catholic and Protestant, have courted political power and happily allowed themselves to be used by it. This always happens when the church confuses the kingdom of Christ with the kingdoms of this present age. Jesus came not to jumpstart the theocracy in Israel, much less to be the founding father of any other nation. He's not a mascot for a voting block, but the savior of the world. He came to forgive sins and bring everlasting life, to die and rise again, so that through faith in him, we too can share in his new creation. This is not to say that we should have no concern at all about the state of our nation. However, many of us sound like we've staked everything, not only on constitutional freedoms, but also on social respect, acceptance, and even power. While I'm thankful, brothers and sisters, and I'll say it again and again and again, that we live in a country with a constitution worth defending and protecting that allows for freedom of religion, we need to say without reservation that no politician from any party can give us anything we don't already have in Christ or take away from us anything that we already have in Christ. If they promised us security by voting for them, we have to reject their promise, not because it's ill-intentioned, but it's because it's not something they're able to give. And if they threaten to take away our security, we say, bring it on. Because we serve the ruler of the kings of the earth who is stronger than any temporary president of a 200-year-old republic. While progressives in our country are more likely to take on the beastly image of trying to crush Christians, and we're going to get to that in a moment, it seems that conservatives in our country are more likely to take on the beastly image of trying to co-opt Christians if they can. So this leads us to number C, uh, letter C, the final point, a desire to crush through punishment. Look at 13, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation. And then verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this is all about slaying, crushing, killing Christians, eliminating their influence from the public square, sweeping them out. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to remind you that politics everywhere, not just in our own country, is driven by fear. It preys upon fear. Fear of destruction and harm, fear of the bad guys, whoever those bad guys might be, fear of the other side. Fear is the common currency, and this is the goal of the state, to keep you afraid so that you will, they will, you will look to them for salvation. 
to get and keep you afraid so that you will look to them to deliver you. Brothers and sisters, the church is neither the master nor the servant of the state. We are the conscience of the state. We must be its guide and critic, never its tool, even as we respect it and give due respect and honor to whom it's due, as God has called us. Yet so many Christians down through church history and to this day have surrendered their role as the conscience, guide, and critic. They are happy to be brought, bought, and pimped by the state. And if you won't, expect to become the object of the state's antagonism. State-sponsored false ideology, ideologies promoted with evangelistic zeal in university classrooms, on television shows and hit songs and advertising and political campaigns, in the media, in pulling an NBA game out of a state or an MLB game out of a state because of some particular view, ultimately seeks either to deceive or displace Christians, removing them from any meaningful cultural participation. The false prophet marks the beast loyalists on the right hand or on the forehead, symbolizing that they do his bidding and think in accord with his lies. So we've, we're seeing this play out even in our own day. Those who won't follow suit and get on the right side of history are excluded from society, even kept from buying and selling. Haven't we seen that take place? It's easy to imagine how the LGBTQ plus revolution now embraced and championed by Western governments might lead to the very situation that's described here in Revelation. We already see evidence along these lines as professors and public school teachers' jobs hang in the balance, depending on whether they're willing to get in line with pronouncing lies of calling men women and women men. As Revelation teaches and as history has shown, social ostracization is Satan's in-game in state-sponsored deception. That's the game, okay? That's the game. That's what's going to happen unless Christ intervenes. So John is telling us here that when the state moves out from under God, disciples of Jesus Christ will find themselves in trouble. Why? Because disciples of Jesus Christ pledge allegiance to the emperor of emperors, the king of kings, the premier of premiers, the president of presidents, the commander-in-chief of the commander-in-chiefs, Jesus Christ. The disciples do not set out to be troublemakers, but the state will see us as such by our very existence, by the fact that we're, that we're not willing just to shut our mouths and keep our faith in our homes and our hearts. But as soon as we start to speak Christ's truth anywhere, we will receive the pushback. For if the state finds its unity in one center, those who live around another center will be experienced as disturbers of the status quo, and they may even be experienced as subversives. So they will come. This will bring the pressure to compromise. They will say, it's fine if you worship Jesus in private, just don't do it in public. It's fine if you want to keep Jesus as Lord in the private sector, but don't bring this Jesus stuff into public sector. We are going to need some serious backbone and some gracious, kind, non-fighting, meekness, love, truth-telling character in the days ahead. We're going to need a theology of getting fired lovingly and graciously because we will not bow to the beast. So that leads me to some final applications here to help us think through navigating the complexity of living in a complex age. How did, let's ask this question, how did Jesus engage the beast? How did, of his day, Rome, right? How did he engage the beast? In his day, the Herodians and the Sadducees were complicit with the evil system. They went right along with it. The Zealots, one of whose was a disciple of his, uh, was also, was a fighter against the evil system. And the Essenes withdrew into the desert, <laughs> Now, we aren't to withdraw from those nasty Ninevites and flee to Tarshish like Jonah, <laughs> nor are we to capitulate and make peace with the world for its silver like Judas, 
nor are we to pursue utopian worldliness by fighting for short-term political outcomes like Peter did with his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane while failing to see the bigger picture at play and the bigger realities at stake. Rather, like Daniel, we are to represent God. We have a pagan king who may feed us to the lions, and while we will give him honor, we will never give him our ultimate allegiance. Because to do so would be to compromise our commitment to our Lord. So as his followers, we live among the world, not withdrawing, yet at the same time we call out the sins in the world, not being complicit in them, while being radically loving toward our enemies, not fighting. So Jesus created his own community, whom he called to live by his kingdom politics, his kingdom ethic. So what does that look like? I got five quick things. Here's as citizens of the kingdom, these are the things I think we should be doing. Number one, we should be praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Instead of only reciting 2 Chronicles 7.14, because our land is not groaning over the sins of America, our land is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what Romans 8 teaches. The land is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God and the return of Jesus Christ. So we need to be praying much more, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second, we should be striving as a church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace instead of dividing over earthly political parties governed by the devil. Number three, we should be concerned about maintaining our Christian witness in a crooked and perverse generation by learning how to suffer well than seeking to maintain our religious liberties. And we should strive to maintain our religious liberties. I'm not saying that. But when, when and if the day comes... We need to be prepared to suffer. Number four, we should seek to distinguish the Christian faith from politics and American patriotism because America is not the bride of Christ churches. All right, now there's a place, a wonderful place for uh, American patriotism. There's a place for patriotism. Nationalism is a form of beast worship. But patriotism, legitimate love of country, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of what it means to be a good citizen of the country to which you belong. But we have to remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not building a political party. He's building his church. God the Father does not give the title deed of the earth to the donkey or the elephant. He gives it to the lamb. Our involvement in the affairs of our nation are not kingdom activities. They are liberties that are afforded to us by common grace in the kingdom of man. The only agenda of God's kingdom that we are commanded to advance is the gospel. Let's keep first things first. Number five, we should put our hope in Christ instead of putting our trust in politicians. We are to expect suffering at the hands of the government. This is the norm of the Christian experience. Ours has been the blessed, though not, not problematic, but blessed abnormality. But the normal posture is Revelation 13 verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone wants to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone wants to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. That's the normal posture. Captivity and death. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The beast is allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. This means God sometimes allows the government to take lives of Christians. In fact, he always does if they are taken. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 16, 6. Revelation 17, 6. Revelation 18, 24. Revelation 19, 2. Revelation 20, verse 4. All teach us that at the hands of the government, what Christians should expect is captivity and death. That's what Christians should expect. The way we maintain our witness to God's kingdom is not loving our lives even unto God death. We need to have a healthy suspicion of political institutions, knowing that even the best of them tend toward blasphemy and beastliness. Allegiance to a state is always secondary to allegiance to the kingdom of God. To the degree that a governmental platform, regardless of party, is consistent with the kingdom of God, to that degree we obey. When it's no longer consistent, we must prepare, be prepared to speak truth to power and accept the consequences of our dissent. The best way we serve our nation is by putting God's kingdom above our nation. 
The beast wants us to put our allegiance to our nation or political tribe above our allegiance to Jesus and his people. Listen, brothers and sisters, you have more in common with the Christian in China than any unbelieving American. Let's disabuse ourselves of any false hope that any human government is going to bring in the kingdom of God. God's king, Jesus, will bring the kingdom, and until he does, let's not be fooled by cheap imitations. Every person in all of history leading up to the end of history either belongs to God and Christ or to this world and its ways. And Satan, all throughout history and continuing today, is deceiving many through friendly words enticing ideologies, appealing policies, and attractive religions that all subtly yet eternally pull people away from worship of the one true God. This is how the dragon works through these beasts. And so as brothers and sisters, my call for us is to be the best citizens of our nation that we can. It's it's to love America most by loving Christ above all and being willing to promote the good, champion the good, and suffer if needed. Because in our suffering, we are commending our allegiance to the man who was raised from the dead. And that and that alone will get the world's attention. Whoa, why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you surrendering? You must have a value higher than what this country can give you. And oh, do we ever have a higher value? For we are seeking the city is to come, a heavenly one. Let's live like it with all of God's enabling grace. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the country in which we live. We are grateful that you have placed us here because you are the one who has determined our time and our seasons and the the boundaries of our dwelling. You are the one who's placed us in this state, in this city, in this moment, for your good purposes. And all of your churches and your people that are around our nation are placed in their cities and their communities to represent Christ, to speak truth, to live out the gospel, and to proclaim him until he comes again. Lord, make your church faithful in these difficult days. We don't know what lies ahead. All we know is that typically, as we read in the book of Revelation, things just don't get better. They tend to go south. So Lord, would you grant us grace? Would you continue your leavening, gracious, common grace influence in our own country to preserve righteousness and put down wickedness? Would you exalt righteousness in our land? Would you send revival to our churches? Would you convert masses and masses of people whose hearts would be transformed and whose minds would be fundamentally changed to embrace God as supreme? For Lord, if they don't, they will continue to embrace the state as supreme and they will continue to work their will out under the dragon and beast's control to execute their demonic will in the world. So, Lord, make us to be good lovers of our enemies. Make us to be good sufferers for the cause of Christ. Make us to be good truth-tellers who are winsome and loving and not jerks and not mean and not rude, but who will lovingly, just as Christ did, suffer in the meekness of wisdom. Lord, give us grace. We need grace these days. We pray for your reviving spirit to come among us, even as we read at the beginning of our service. Will you not revive us again? that your people would hope in you. Revive us again, O Holy Spirit. Revive us, make us a vibrant, passionate, God-loving, God-glorifying people who love our neighbors, who love your church, and who most of all love the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.